0: Good morning, I'm John Wyman, I'm the mission pastor here at Fellowship of Grace, and just really excited to have another opportunity to come out and, and worship with you, sing songs of praise, and spend time in prayer, and, and now we're going to spend some time reading God's Word and studying God's Word, and we're going to do that by continuing in our series in the book of Genesis, and today we're going to be in Genesis 21. Really what we're going to be talking about today in Genesis 21 is God's faithfulness. I mean, as you think about faithfulness, you know, what would be some, some words that would help us you know, understand that, especially on, on a scale of you know, God's faithfulness? And, as Brian just prayed, the truth is i, I don 't know that we necessarily can get to, to that level. I think we can uh, spend some time today getting to understand better just how faithful God is and what that means to us and As, as I was thinking through this week, okay what, what, how, how can we illustrate this well and I, I, I came to you know kind of thinking about reliability, you know complete trust in someone that 's been built over time. And the, the example I came up with was someone being on time. So let's think about work for a minute. Maybe you're working with a new person. Maybe it's a project, or you're working around each other. And you know, we all know there's, there's folks who are really good about being on time, and there's folks who maybe that's not their gift. You know, so we we look at that, and we, we someone says, "Hey, I, I'm going to be at a certain place and a certain time, and ready to go." And first time they are great, awesome. You know, that's good, but. It's one time. You really can't put a trend to that or anything, you know. It's just they, 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 one for one, that's good. So, you know, you continue to work with this person. You continue to observe, and, you know, you start to see a few times, and they're still, you know, every time, they're, they're on time. They're the way they said they were going to be. They, they fulfilled what they said they were going to be. We're probably getting to a trend, but you feel probably yet not to the point where you can go, hey, absolutely, I know that this person is completely reliable. When they say they're going to do something, they're going to do it. We're not quite there yet. But then you continue to work with folks and you continue to, to be around them and you see over time that time and time and time and time and time and time and time again, they are exactly where they're supposed to be, exactly where they said they're going to be. And you get to a point where you have a picture of someone where they say I'm going to do something. I promise to do this. I make a commitment to do this. And there's no question in your mind that that's going to happen. We see people who they are. We see who they are by seeing who they are. We we, we just, over time, get to know people and get to have a feeling for who they are and what their character is as we're around them, as we spend time with them. And that's kind of what we're going to take a look at today when we look at God's faithfulness. Now, in chapter 21, we're going to look at some things. For instance, we're going to see the birth of Isaac. We're going to see uh, some troubles and some struggles with Ishmael and with Hagar. We're going to see some interaction with Abraham and a local king called Abimelech. But what we're really taking a look at today, what we really want to focus on, is God. We want to talk about God's faithfulness. Because the people in the accounts, they are extremely important. People matter. People are important. But we really want to hone in today on the truths that God is teaching us about himself. And the first one we're going to see today is that God fulfills his promises. And we see this in verse 1 and verse 2. And in there it's written, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time in which God had spoken to him. Now, remember here that at this point, Sarah's about 90 years old, and Abraham's about 100 years old. This is not normative. This is not normal. The point here is not so much about a child being born. This is important. But it's really about God fulfilling all his promises. Isaac's birth is one very good example of that. As we look at the Bible, the Bible really is God's revelation of himself to us. So that when we read the Bible, we get to understand who God is, what his character is, what a life is lived with him as the central figure in our lives. And as we do that, and as we go through Genesis 21 today, we're going to continue to see that God is completely reliable and is completely faithful to his promises. So if we look at the case of Isaac here and God being faithful, we can actually go back to Genesis 12. That's where this discussion starts of a son being born. Now, in Genesis 12, Abraham is 75 years old. And God says to him, to your offspring, I give this land. He's making a promise of land. He says, to your offspring, I give this land. There's one minor glitch with that from Abraham's perspective is he doesn't have any offspring. And oh, by the way, he's 75 years old. We kind of continue on. We look at Genesis 17. Not only does he say to your offspring, he promises a son through his wife, Sarah. And then in Genesis 18 He specifically talks about coming back and visiting Sarah this time next year. And she'll have a a son this time next year. See, if we look at these two verses again, God is active and highlighted three separate times. This is a supernatural act that can only be done by God. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah, as he had promised. Now, Abraham's present, Abraham's part of this but he's not even mentioned in verse 1. It's because it's all about God. It's all about God fulfilling his promises. You can't attribute this to anybody other than God. Because he's revealing his power and his faithfulness through this birth. Through so the birth of a child that couldn't come any other way. And through a timing that's his and his alone. So we can understand that God is completely in charge. And that when he makes a promise, he keeps a promise. The next thing we see is that Abraham showed obedience. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. If we read that together, we'll see that Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now, as we read through Genesis and we see the accounts of Abraham, we can see that Abraham was clearly called by God, and Abraham demonstrated great faith in his life. In this case, he clearly obeys a command from, actually two separate commands from Genesis 17. One is when God tells him he will name him Isaac. The other is when he gives him instruction on circumcise the circumcised men on the eighth day. But as we read Genesis, we can also see that Abraham, although he was a man of great faith, He was also a man who at times demonstrated a lack of faith. He sometimes demonstrated some real disobedience. For instance, when he was leaving, God told him to leave Haran. He told him, leave your family behind. He took his nephew Lot. That didn't work out so well. Abraham told his wife Sarah on two separate occasions, one of which we're going to look at today, to lie, to tell people that she was his sister and not his wife. And then we know that he fathered Ishmael by Sarah's servant Hagar. See, just like each of us, Abraham is capable of great faith, but he's also capable of great unbelief. But in Abram's case, Abraham's case, excuse me, and in our case, that doesn't change God's faithfulness. See, God acted first here. And when he did, Abraham had a response. In this case, the response was obedience. See, whenever God makes a promise, whenever God acts, we have a choice to make in how we're going to respond. And that, repli- that applies even when God the promise that God makes is way beyond anything we could normally understand or we could even believe. And that leads us to our third truth, which is that God's purpose, excuse me, God's promises are greater than anything we can imagine. And we see that in verses five to seven. In there, we see that Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, to anybody who's had kids, anybody who's had kids that are out of the home right now, I understand that... The promise of having a son when you're like 90 or 100 years old is probably not quite as appealing to us as it probably was to Abraham and Isaac. But again, this isn't about Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah. They're a part of the story, but this is about God. And and while they had a great promise of a son in, in, in their advanced age, we can take an application ourselves that we have a great promise from God as well. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each one of us has made a decision to disobey God. At some point, each one of us has done that. And and the problem with that is, is God is perfect and God can't be around sin. So that when we disobey him, when we sin, we separate ourselves from God. And there's nothing that we can do to fix that problem by ourselves. But God had a plan. And that was to send Jesus Christ out of a perfect heaven to come down into a world that was broken and sinful and to live a perfect life so that he could go and die on a cross as a perfect sacrifice to rise three days later to defeat death and defeat sin. And then we place our faith in what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. All that disobedience, all that separation is forgiven. It's over we're reconciled again. That's the gospel. It's actually that simple. And if you've never heard that before, this is the first time you've heard it, or you may have heard it before, and you're still questioning, I'm gonna beg you, please don't leave today until you talk to one of us. It's that important. But it's a great promise to us. See, Jesus' earthly ministry, his death, his resurrection, his teachings, they're all recorded in the New Testament. But if we really look at God's word, we see that his plan for salvation was promised back in the Old Testament. Just as there was a promise to Abraham and Sarah, there's a great promise to us. And I want to take a look at that for a few moments so we understand just how faithful God is, just how confident we can be in his promises. When he says he's going to do something, he does something. We'll start with taking a look at Romans 9.33. And in there, Paul's writing to the Romans, and he says, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, him being Jesus, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, he writes, as it is written. Well, where is it written? It's written in Isaiah 28. In there, Isaiah writes, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in, in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Now, when we talk about being put to shame, what we're talking about is God's judgment. What Paul and Isaiah are both pointing to is that when we believe in what Jesus Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection, we are not put to shame by being judged guilty. In, instead, we, we exchange our sinfulness for, God, for Jesus' righteousness, and we're saved. That's not being put to shame. That's what it means. It was said in the Old Testament. It's said in the New Testament. Matter of fact, we can look at Jesus being referenced specifically in Psalm 118, Zechariah 4, Matthew 21, Mark 12. Luke 20, Acts 4, 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2. Each one of those references specifically talks of Jesus as that cornerstone. It's consistent throughout the the scriptures. Folks, the truth is that forgiveness is a rather rare act in our world today. That's a sad fact. For those of you who may remember the story of Michael Vick, if you don't know who Michael Vick is, he was a quarterback, actually an excellent quarterback uh, at the time. Uh, he was playing for the Atlanta Falcons. He was, he was kind of like on top of the football world. I mean, he, he was an amazing athlete an amazing quarterback. And then it was discovered that he was part of a, a dogfighting operation. And, and when it first came out, he, he denied it. He, he blamed it on friends and he blamed it on family members that, you know, they were taking his money and, and doing it in his name and he didn't know anything about that and until that story unraveled. And he was convicted. He went to prison for several years. And while he was in prison, he was discipled by, by several men, one of which was Tony Dungy, a, a Christian and a football coach. And, and, and over a period of time, as Tony Dungy discipled Michael Vick, Michael Vick became truly repentant. He, he recognized the wrong that he had done, and he was truly sorry for it. And... and it is paid his debt. He paid his penalty. And now he's being released from prison. And now the question is, is he going to go back and play football? Because he's still a relatively young guy. He's still of age to play football. And, you know, if you've ever looked at sports situations like this, whenever there's a, a condition or a situation like this, you've generally got you know, two groups of folks when, when, when teams are looking or, or sign someone with, you know, a, a questionable background or, or, or a bad sin in their past. And, and the first group is folks who, all they're looking at is, here's this amazing athlete who's going to help us more, win more games, and we're just like ecstatic. This is awesome. And then you've got this group of folks over here who are appalled that, that we would let this horrible sinner come and, and, and resume his career, resume his life. You know, And there's always this tension there between the two of them. And I was watching a documentary on this once. And he ended up signing with the Philadelphia Eagles. And, and again, two, two groups of folks. One group extremely happy, excited. Now we're going to win the Super Bowl. Uh, other group are out there protesting in front of the stadium. And they actually had an interview with a bunch of folks. I remember this one lady that they interviewed. And, and she is just raging. She is absolutely raging. And, and I mean, like her eyes are... Scary, you know? And, and she's like, I will never forgive him, and nobody should ever forgive him, because he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Like, wow, kind of put yourself in a pretty, pretty, pretty important position there, didn't you? Especially when we consider that if, if maybe we turned and had your whole life exposed, does that mean that none of us deserve to be forgiven as well? Now, that's kind of a scary thought. But the sad part is, this attitude is, is way too common. In our world today, you, you can almost use the word "prevalent" that, that folks don't deserve to be forgiven. Like we've decided that on our own, and and, and I wonder if that's part of the problem in people accepting God's grace—that that the thought of forgiveness, simply by placing your faith in what Christ accomplished through His death and rex- death and resurrection, is sufficient—that we don't have to do something ourselves. It, it, it's almost too much, to, to, too good to be true. Unless we go back to God's faithfulness. Unless we go back and look and see time and time and time and time and time and time, and time again. God makes a promise and he keeps a promise. So that when God says I, that, that all you have to do is put your faith in through what Jesus Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection. And you are saved. You are forgiven. Then we can have that, that, that assurance. We don't have to look at it through the lens of the world because we've got a completely different standard to look at. You know, I used that example before of of being on time and being late. I I think if any one of us had, like, our life history up there, you know, some of us would be, like, way on the on-time side, but we'd probably have some lights in there. We'd probably have a few times that we were late in there and kind of messed up. I, I, I use that example for a reason. There's no lates because God never failed to accomplish his promises. And that's the point here. If we look at the promise of salvation, like I said, it's documented in the New Testament, but it's promised throughout the Old Testament. I'm I'm, going to talk about, just go over real quick, some promises of Jesus coming throughout the the Old Testament. You know, we see in Micah 5.2 that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. We see that documented in Matthew 2. We see Isaiah 7.14 promising to be born a virgin. We see that documented in Luke 1.35. Zechariah 9.9 9 says he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and he's going to come in gentleness. We see that um, documented in Matthew 21. We can go to Isaiah. We can go to Isaiah 53.9. It says he would die with the wicked, with the sinful, and be buried with the rich. Luke 27.38 talks about the fact that when he was crucified and he went to the cross, there was a thief on one side and there was a thief on the other. But later on in Matthew 27 in verses 59 and 60, we see that Joseph of Arimathea went down and requested Jesus' body so he could bury it in the tomb that he had prepared. We see that in Isaiah 53.10 that he would be resurrected from the grave. We see that documented in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and we see it mentioned by Paul in Romans 4. And then in Psalm 16.10, the psalmist tells us that Jesus' body would not decay, and we see that documented in Acts 2.31. See, these are just a few of the references that point us to Jesus, all to Jesus. I, you know, I, again, I use that, that on-time versus late example. Time after time after time after time after time. Jesus promises, Jesus, I'm sorry, God promises, God delivers. God promises, God delivers. God promises, God delivers every single time. That's the point we want to take out of this. See, just as Abraham and Sarah received a great gift that was really beyond their ability to understand as 90- and 100-year-old parents, we also have the gift of a great promise of, of salvation. Now, this is a great promise. It's a great truth. But there's another truth we have to understand that goes along with that. And that's the truth about consequences to our decisions and our actions. And we see that when we look that Hagar and Ishmael were cast out. We see that in verses 8 to 14. In there, it, it describes, that the, and the child, this is uh, Isaac, and the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the, saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. Now she's talking about uh, Ishmael. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who she had borne to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac, your offspring will be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and broke bread and and, and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, if we want to talk about consequence, I think there's a couple of them we can look at right here in this text. And we know that Sarah and Abraham, they, they came up with this one. God promised a, a, a son. They come up with this plan to, to use Hagar as a surrogate for them. And, and what we found is when they did that, that introduced continual conflict in Abraham's family for the rest of the recording. We see conflict between Sarah and Hagar, We see conflict between Abraham and Ishmael. We see conflict now between Sarah and... I'm sorry, we see conflict between Abraham and Sarah. And then we see conflict between Sarah and Ishmael. The second piece of consequence we see is is this this reference to Ishmael's mocking. It it uses in the ESV here uh, laughing. Those, Those terms are really interchangeable. And in the result of his mocking, the consequence of his mocking, Paul calls it a persecution when he refers to it in Galatians 4, is that both Hagar and Ishmael are cast out of the house. They're sent away. They can't be a part of the family anymore. Now, a point on this, on Ishmael's mocking, and what we know and what we don't know. We know that Ishmael was probably about 16 or 17 years old at this point. And the reason we know that is is that Ishmael was born when uh, Abraham was 86. We now know that uh, Abraham was 100 when uh, Isaac was born. And it took about two or three years for Isaac to be weaned. So about 16 or 17 years old at that point. We clearly see that Isaac was two or three years old. We also know that whatever Sarah saw made her upset enough, made her mad enough, bothered her enough that she wanted them completely out of the family. Like, this wasn't like a timeout. This was, you go and you don't come back. It was that serious to her. But we really don't know exactly what Ishmael did to get himself kicked out because the Bible doesn't say you know, there's a lot of theories on exactly what he did and a lot of people trying to interpret and then they take that and, and turn it into a discussion of, you know, was Sarah too harsh? Was she overreacting? Was it fair or unfair? I, I read one commentary. I think he put it real well as I, as I was researching and he said, the theories on this are as numerous as they are useless. And the point in that is that whether Sarah was too harsh really isn't the point in the story. The details must have not not been the point that God wanted us to learn because if they were, he'd have put it in the Bible. He'd inspired Moses to write it in there. The point is that there are consequences to our decisions. There are consequences to our actions. Sometimes they're immediate. Sometimes they they can play out much later. I mean, in this case, it was 17 or 18 years after Sarah and Haggai. I'm sorry, I'm getting all messed up here. 17 or 18 years after Sarah and Abraham used Hagar as a surrogate before they're forced out. Folks, we're forgiven. If we're talking application to us. We're forgiven when we place our faith in what Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection. But that's different than us being free from the consequences of the decisions of the actions that we've made previous in our life. If we were to look at ourselves, we were to look at the messiness in our lives, you know, maybe damaged or strained relationships, maybe the effects of unhealthy living, you know, perhaps our financial situation. God doesn't necessarily take away all those consequences, even though he's forgiven us. He does offer comfort, and he can turn things around when we take our hands off the wheel and we turn back to him and let us lead him again, let him lead us again. But in this passage, we see that Abraham, he's heartbroken. This is his son. It's not Sarah's son, but it is his son. He's heartbroken about this. But God comforts him and makes another promise to him. In verse 13, we see, he says, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. See, even though Abram tried to do this his own way with Sarah by using Hagar, God still blesses him. God's still merciful in this. Once again, we see God make a promise and God keep a promise. And the fifth thing we see today, we see that God protects and provides for Hagar and Ishmael. And we see that in verses 15 to 21. So in verses 15 to 21, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she, said, then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. And she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him. The important point we want to take out of this is the fact that God may say no to our request is not a rejection of us. It's simply God saying, no, that's not part of my plan. If we go back to Genesis Genesis 17, at this point, um, God still has the promise of a son through uh, Sarah, but Ishmael has already been born. And and Abram actually goes to God and asks if Ishmael can be the the heir that that God promised. He's almost kind of sitting there going, hey, um, God, since we've got Ishmael here, um, can we just call this good? Can we we be done? And, And God says, no. God says, no, that's not my plan. But then he goes on to say of Ishmael, I've already blessed him. See, even though Ishmael wasn't part of God's plan, God blesses him anyway, and he promises to bless him in the future. That's not a rejection. That's simply God being faithful to his promise of grace, his promise of plans. And Hagar's not rejected either. She has two personal encounters with an angel of God. In Genesis 16, when when, uh, Sarah is being particularly harsh to her, and she runs away, and she's out in the wilderness, an angel of God comes, and he comforts her, and he sends her back. And then we see here in in verses 17 to 19 when she's lost in the desert and she's desperate, God himself opens her eyes so that she can see the water and the well that's right in front of her. So I think the the example of Hagar and Ishmael in the desert is kind of a good picture of of desperation. If you've ever spent any time in the desert, it it can be a very harsh, a very unforgiving environment. The desert can seem like kind of a hopeless place but once again God fulfills his promise because he heard and he delivered. And the same is true with us. Look look for our past, the things we've done in the past, or the fact that God's answer may be no or not now or not that way, it's not a rejection of us. We can all go through hard times, we can all have desperate times, maybe even feel hopeless at the time, but when we follow him and turn our lives over to God, he delivers every time, just like he did here in, in, in chapter 21. We still might have to deal with the consequences, but God is faithful and delivers every single time. The final thing we see out of this passage is that Abraham, Abraham lives peaceably, and we see that in three ways. First thing we see is he makes peace with Abimelech. Now, uh, I'm gonna read the passage, and I'm gonna we'll go back and, and give you a little backstory on, on, on Abimelech. So we see that in verses 22 to 24, and, and in there it's recorded that at that time Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, "God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land we have sojourned." And Abraham said, "I will swear." Now, to, to fully understand this passage here, we actually have to go back to Genesis 20, and that well, it wasn't part of our sermon series, but to just give you a quick summary of what happens there, Abraham is moving again. He settles down in a land that, that Abimelech is, is the king over, and just like he did in Egypt when he gets nervous and, and because Sarah is very beautiful and he's afraid they're going to kill him and, and, and take his wife, not once, but here a second time, he says, hey, tell him you're my sister. And so... She, naturally, she's his sister. Abimelech takes her uh, into his court, and God visits Abimelech in the night in a, in a dream. And, and here's the, here's the result. And you know, We go to Genesis 20, verse 9. You know, God, God has visited him in his dream and told him he's sinful, uh, and told him there's a consequence. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done things that ought not to be done. Abimelech is, I mean, he's got every right to be furious. He's got every right to be mad. He's rightfully upset. But what he did was he gave Abraham a large gift as a sign that he had not dishonored Sarah. And then he told Abraham he could live anywhere within Abimelech's land. He could go wherever he wanted. Abimelech saw God's power. He saw God. Abraham had been sinful here by by telling his wife to lie. He saw the presence of God in Abraham's life, and he saw his power and glory. And God's presence gave Abraham, in this case, a peace, which is very interesting because it's the exact opposite of what Abraham experienced when he tried to fix this problem on his own by telling Sarah to lie. But the truth is, because we're human, we still see conflict come in. And, and that's the second area of peace that we see with uh, with with Abraham and Abimelech here, is they resolve conflict, and we see that in verses twenty five to thirty two. Here it's written, when Abraham, reproved Abra- Abime- when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, "I did not. I do not know who has done this thing. You do not tell me." And I've I've not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and two men. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? He, Abraham, said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I, that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. See, now in this case, we see that it's Abraham who shows that he's acted honorably by giving a large gift to Abimelech. And the result of that is, is that Abimelech and the commander of his army get up, they leave, they go home, and we don't hear of them again. We don't hear of conflict with them again. And Abraham's response to that and he gives God, glory to God. And we see that in verses 33 and 34. And there it says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Besheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned there many days in the land of the Philistines. See, Abraham's living a very secure life right now. But it's not of his own doing. It's not because of himself. We can see that when we look at Proverbs 133 where, where Solomon writes, but whoever listens to me, to God, will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. It's a promise from God to keep us secure when we place our lives in his care. We put them in his hand and do things his way. Again, just one more time today, we see a promise made and a promise kept. See, folks, the truth is God is revealing himself to us. And when he's revealing himself to be, it's faithful. When he says something, he does it. When 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 he promises something, he accomplishes it. Promise made, promise kept. Over and over and over and over and over and over again, just in this one chapter itself. Look, throughout our lives, we're going to have tragedies, we're going to have high points, low points, we're going to have victories. God's there, even when we don't see it. I, I I would please don't look at this chapter as simply like a neat story about Abraham's family or an interesting genealogy of how. Yes, that's true. Understanding God's word is important. We want to take time to read God's word, to understand it, to remember it, to memorize it. That is all extremely important. But there's so much more to this than a story. It's a revelation of who God is and what his plan for us is. It's further proof that his gospel of forgiveness that I shared with you a moment ago, his gospel of salvation is true and that he will deliver it. It gives us a confidence for ourselves and it gives us a confidence to share it with other people around us. Here's the problem. If you look at this chapter, if you take chapter 21, and you only look at it as as a story, as a narrative, as a genealogy, you miss out on the fact that you now have confidence in how faithful God is. And every single time he says he's going to do something, he has delivered. You miss out on that, and you also miss out on opportunities to either accept that grace by receiving Christ as your your Lord and Savior, or if you already have, by sharing it with someone else. I'm going to share a story with you since we're, we're talking about stories that seem unbelievable today. This is true. This happened to me about, I don't know, four, four or five weeks ago. I was at work, and I got a phone call on my, uh, on my cell phone. And, you know, it's, it's tax season. So the, the robocalls are out. The, ta- the, the tax scams are out. You know, you know how these go, right? You know, you get a you get a recorded message, it sounds very threatening, and you know, you're really behind, this is your last chance to make it right, or you know, because if you if you don't respond now, you know, you're really going this is really gonna hurt, you know. And uh, you know, usually I just you know block the call and away we go. You can think I'm nuts, but every once in a while I get these these um, you know telemarkers, these calls, and you know it's a scam. And uh, every once in a while I'll try and engage with them. You know? Now, usually, the result of that is either hanging up or profanity and hanging up, but in this case, it was a little bit different. And as I'm talking to this guy, he, you know, I, I waited till the robocall was, was done, and this guy immediately came on the line, and I could immediately tell, uh, he, had a, he had a very clear accent. If I had to guess, probably like Southeast Asia or South you know, West Pacific, something like that, but um, he clearly wasn't in the United States. And uh, I said, hey, man, what's your, what's your name? No, you're not. <laughs> and uh, I said, we both know your name's not Mark McKinley, is it? And he immediately got, like, really upset. But this is where it gets interesting. He says, I will talk to you. I will talk to you, but you must be respectful to me. You, you must talk to me respectfully. And, and, and I got it, you know, because I, I see you looking at me inquisitive looks, okay? He gets be, guys like me who, who stay on the line, usually we're cussing them out, right? I and mean, that's usually the reaction. And he's tired of that. I said, it's okay, I'll, I'll talk to you respectfully. I'm, I'm not here to, to bust your chops too hard, man. He says, no, you, you have to understand, you must talk to me respectfully. I said, it's good, We're, we'll talk respectfully. I, I promise. Mark. I said, look, we, we both know your name, it's not Mark, right? And he goes, no, it's not. I mean, the, the whole pitch of his voice kind of just, you, you could almost feel his shoulders just kind of, no, I'm, I'm not Mark, this is all a lie. I said, okay, that's cool. I said, uh, and, and you don't really work for the IRS, do you? And he said, uh, no, nope, I don't. I said, okay. And you know I don't owe you money, don't you? And he said, yeah, I know that. I said, okay, all right, I, I got it. I said, so let me, let me ask you a question. Is there really much of a difference in what you're doing versus like you going down to a store and just start taking money out of the cash register. And he immediately started to explain to me that, you know, I came into the city, things were tough, I couldn't get a job, and, you know, the whole nine yards. And I said, okay, I, I, dude, I got all that. I, I understand life is tough. I, I'm not here to bust your chops. But you haven't answered my question yet. Is there a difference? He said, no, nah, there's, there's really not a difference. I said, okay, well, can I give you some advice? He said, yeah. I said, you need to get up and walk out right now. He said, oh, you don't understand, it's it's too hard. I said, dude, I don't understand. I mean, I don't understand your personal situation, but I understand it's hard. But I also don't understand that you just told me that you lied who you were, you lied about who you're working for, and you lied about telling me I owed you money. How do you feel about that? He said, ah, it's not good. I said, well, there's a reason for that, man. And uh, I said, dude, you just need to get up and walk out. And he he changed. He said, yeah, and I need to take some of my friends with me. I said, yes, you do. And uh, so we talked, you know, we didn't have a ton of time. We just kind of talked a little more. And I said, uh, hey, let me, let me ask you a question, Mark. I said, uh, anybody ever share Jesus Christ with you? He said, well, you know, I grew up, my family had a Bible, and uh, I think my family goes to church, and I, I don't go to church much. I said, okay, but my question is, did anybody ever share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you? He said, no. So I shared it with him just like I shared it with you just a moment ago. And uh, after I was done, I said, uh, Hey, Mark, would you, would you like to pray to receive Jesus Christ in your heart as Lord and Savior? And he said, yes, I would. And so we prayed right there on the phone. And he prayed to receive Christ in his heart. Now, now, now here's why I tell you this story. Okay, here, here's why this all makes sense. And here's why this is important. Okay? If we don't completely wrap our heads around the fact that God is completely faithful in everything he says and every promise he makes and that his promise of salvation, of forgiveness, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, is completely true. We don't have to work for ourselves. We don't have to do anything else. We believe in what Jesus Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection. If we don't believe that, we miss those opportunities. We just do, guys. And that's sad. That is a horrible opportunity wasted. OK Look, I, we, we know his name's not Mark McKinley, but I'm going to ask you to pray for Mark McKinley tonight, because God knows who he is, and pray for all the Mark McKinley's out there tonight, OK? Because it matters that much, because God is faithful to His promises. We're not being promised children at the age of 90 and 100. Thank goodness. But we are promised salvation. Thank goodness. Let's pray. Lord, just, Lord, I thank you for, for your word. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the way that, that you reveal yourself, who you are, which is 100% true, completely trustworthy, totally faithful. I thank you for your message of salvation. That despite our sins, despite the fact that we made a decision to separate ourselves from you, that when we place our faith in what Jesus Christ accomplished, we can be saved. And Lord, I just ask that you would continue to remind us. You would continue to convict us. You'd use us to help remind others. When things get tough, when we can't see the answer, when we can't see the well of water in front of us, Lord, that we would remember you are completely faithful. And even though we can't see it, you are there. And your plans are good. And your plans are in our best interests. And then when we turn ourselves over completely to you, Lord, we enjoy the salvation. We enjoy the peace that we saw today. We enjoy the, the comfort in the assurance. Right. Amen.